So, I um, need some help from our ushers at this point. We've got some communion to disperse. Uh, communion is open to all. Uh, you don't have to be a member of this church. You don't even have to believe anything that we're thinking about believing here in this church. It's an, truly an open table. And the reason we're so open with it is because there's this verse in the Psalms that says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. And it just might be that today, because you're going to have this tasty communion, uh, that that might uh, open your eyes to the fact that you are deeply loved by God. It's a weird communion. This is a gluten-free, nut-free uh, communion bread, uh, and it's also NGO or whatever that is. The, I don't know what it is. Some, uh, some acronym for something. Anyway, it's a lot of not things, <laughs> uh, but it is tasty. So you'll get to that in a bit. I'm going to do this actually at the end of the teaching today. And then uh, the communion is also weird. Uh, because we're weird at Crosswalk, and we try new things. This, uh, our Christmas look is weird. It's different than you're used to, uh, but we like to try new things. By the way, this is a photo backdrop, so if you and yours want to have a Christmas photo, you're welcome to uh, use our stage uh, for that. Uh, so this is wassail that we're going to have, which is a, a celebration drink. Um, there's even a couple of songs that go with it that we are not going to sing. But anyway, um, that's there for us. Okay, so uh, this series that I'm starting uh, today, it's on It's a Wonderful Life, and uh, the background with this, um, I had a different idea for what I wanted to do in Advent about a month ago, and then a few weeks ago, I just started to get a nudge uh, to be thinking about building a series uh, that combines themes of It's a Wonderful Life and the Christmas story, the birth narratives of Jesus, which are found in Matthew and Luke, because there are themes uh, that go back and forth. And so I'm trusting that nudge and hoping that uh, you'll dig it. And as I was thinking about this, I was thinking maybe this will be yet another year that I ruin Christmas. Uh, <laughs> uh, because I've done that at least more than half the time. <laughs> Probably since about 2005, I've been ruining Christmas for many of you for, you know, for many years. And then I, I, I did the math. Do you, can you believe this is my 25th Christmas at Crosswalk in Napa? That's crazy. Yeah. I can't believe you've put up with me for that long. It's, it's remarkable. All right. Well, just to uh, help remind you a little bit of uh, It's a Wonderful Life, here is a trailer for it. It's against the law to commit suicide around here. Yeah, it's against the law where I come from, too. Where do you come from? Heaven. What did what, what, you say just a minute ago? Why do you want to save me? Was it too much to have them work and pay and live and die in a couple of decent rooms and a bath? Anyway, my father didn't think so. This town needs this measly one-horse institution, if only to have some place where people can come without crawling to Potter. I'm leaving right now. I'm going to school. This is my last chance. But they'll vote with Potter otherwise. You can't laugh off this Bailey Park anymore. Bailey family's been a boil on my neck long enough. You realize what this means? It means bankruptcy and scandal and prison. That's what it means. I'm worth more dead than alive. Why don't you go to the riffraff you love so much and ask them? I suppose it's better if I'd never been born at all. All right, you've got your wish. You've never been born. You've been given a great gift, George. A chance to see what the world would be like without you. 
All right, so a couple fun facts about It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, it obviously came out in 1946. Uh, it cost in today's dollars about $60 million uh, to make, which was uh, like $3.7 million back then. But that was a very big budget uh, back then. Uh, you've probably heard press about this. It's, <laughs> this movie is not new. Anybody, has everybody seen the movie? Raise your hand if you've seen the movie. All right. Has anybody not seen the movie? Oh, my gosh. We're going to have to have a viewing party. I can't wait. <laughs> All right. All right. So anyway, um, this was not a great box office success. In fact, it cost $3.7 million to make. Uh, it only brought in $3.3 million in the box office, and they didn't do streaming back in 1946 to make that up. Uh, that means that he had about a $5 million shortfall, which in, uh, to, or $500,000 shortfall, which in today's value is about $7 million that he had to figure out how to finance to make it all happen. In 1970, uh, the rights to this film went public, and that's when cable, cable networks started to roll this film over and over. And I remember in the 1980s, literally, TBS and others like it, Literally, this, this film would be on 24-7, just constantly rolling. And because it permeated the, the airwaves so much, um, people were sick of it. And it was the butt of jokes on late night uh, comedy. Uh, nobody wanted It's a Wonderful Life anymore. It, they were so tired of it. Then NBC made a brilliant move. They bought the rights to the movie. And they let it go. It wasn't viewed for like a year. And then they brought it back, and they put it on prime time, and they got their Thursday night stars, if you remember the Thursday night lineup. They had their, their biggest stars all have these little shots to talk about why this movie was so important. And they resurrected the, the whole movie, and everybody watched it, and everybody fell in love with it again. Uh, so that's the movie. It is, it is my favorite movie uh, of all movies I've seen, and I love, I love going to the movies, and I love watching movies. This is my favorite. However, there are some problems with the movie that we need to talk about. And I know that if I don't talk about them, if I don't offer some disclaimers, uh, somebody is going to write me or email me or pick it, you know, out in front. Um, <laughs> you never know. So I just want to acknowledge that we're talking about a 1946 film with a 1946 sensibility of seeing the world. And these are just a few that I came up with that I want to talk about. First of all, let's talk about cosmology. Uh, the way this, because I know that's the first thing that comes to mind for you too. So, <laughs> so the movie starts with this conversation between angels. People are praying down below, help George, help George, help George. And where are those prayers directed? Heaven. And so we get a picture of what heaven looks like and what angels looks like as these angels start talking. And the angels are represented as stars up in the heavens, right? And... Uh, Poor, oh, what was it, Clarence Oddbody is the, is the angel that uh, gets sent to hopefully get his wings. He's an angel, second class, of course. Uh, and he's just a kind of a puny little star. Uh, but that whole thing is all mixed up. That cosmology uh, reinforces what cosmology has been around and is still with us in a, in a very loud way. That God is up there, out there somewhere, and that we're praying that God breaks in down here somewhere. Uh, that there's a location for God somewhere in the heavens, very distant. We hope our prayers get through so that God can make it all the way down to planet Earth and help us in our time of need. Well, I understand how that made sense centuries ago, but that does not jibe with our experience now 
because we know there are no heavens up there. It's an expanding universe, which we're a tiny little speck of as it continues to expand. A different way of thinking that we offer here at Crosswalk is an open and relational theological perspective or a process perspective, which simply says that God is absolutely everywhere all the time. There's no need for God to break in because God, God's already broken in. God cannot break out. Uh, the fancy word for this is panentheism, everything in God. So as the universe expands, God's presence is expanding at the same rate because everything is in God. We're all swimming in the presence of God. So there's no clearance to come down from the heavens because God is already present. And that matters in terms of how we direct our prayers, how we think about God's movement. There's no waiting for God to show up because God is already here now in us, with us. And that's a cosmological change. So just want to put that out there that I have an issue with their theology. We got to talk about misogyny uh, because women are not treated fairly or well in this uh, movie. It, again, it depicts a time, uh, not a, an eternal truth. And uh, one character that certainly uh, makes sense with, her name is Violet. And Violet, I read this, uh, there's a couple devotionals out there on this. I don't really recommend them. They're kind of okay, but they're on an older theology that may get clunky. Um, but one of these uh, Christian authors talks about Violet as the sexy woman character uh, in the film. And she does. Uh, there are a couple really funny scenes uh, where uh, she turns heads. But it is absolutely clear uh, that she is objectified. That the primary reason she is valued in this film is her, her physical uh, looks. And unfortunately, that is still very much true today. And so I just want to call that out. Uh, that that is, in a way, celebrated uh, in this film, that that is the value of women and the character of Violet, and that's not right. Uh, it does not reflect our theology, which says that men and women are created absolutely as equals in the eyes of God. Uh, and then the other character, which just further makes this point, is uh, George's wife, Mary. Uh, Mary is a wonderful, supportive wife. She evidently read the book that Pam was talking about. <laughs> Uh, she's a wonderful, you know, raising their four kids and working on the house during the day while he's, you know, making the bacon and all that stuff. Um, however, uh, <laughs> kind of the epitome of, of this caricaturization of the misogynistic uh, worldview happens when George is seeing what the world would have been like without him. Because sort of by the end of that journey, he's desperate to find his wife, Mary. What happened to Mary? And then we learned the horrible truth. Mary was an old maid, and she was, shock, a librarian. Oh, no. Could there be anything worse, George? I mean, it's just, it's laughable, right? But when you see it in the movie, you're like, give me a break. Come on. But 1446, okay, that's where they were. Let's just be real. That is a misogynistic view that says uh, you're only really valuable if you get married as a woman, and horror if you don't, and don't ever, you know, you're the biggest nerd ever if you work uh, for a library. That part may be true if you work for a library, but probably not. Anyway, all I'm saying is there are misogynistic themes in the movie, and we just need to recognize them and say, yeah, 1946, you got that wrong. Uh, we're just going to recognize that. And there's uh, racism uh, in the film, uh, for sure. Uh, George's family of origin, they have a maid in the household. Her name is Annie. She happens to be African-American. Uh, she's fitting all the caricatures of that day and thinking about what a black woman maid uh, would look like. 
Uh, there's a little intersectionality here uh, with gender as well. Uh, but even though the family treats her like family, and apparently they have a really good relationship with each other by the end of the movie, not to spoil anything, but Annie, uh, you know, is part of the community uh, in trying to do her part to save the day, and the community welcomes her as their own, so that's all beautiful. But there's one really cringeworthy scene uh, where Harry's brother is getting ready for prom, and he has to go into the kitchen uh, right after dinner, during dinner, to go get some plates to take down for the school dance. And he's following Annie into the kitchen, and as Annie is in front of her, he smacks her on the butt as they're going in. Now, on the one hand, that's, that's a sexist thing, but there's definitely a race element here, too, because I bet he wouldn't have done that with his mother. And so that, that connotes an idea that he has the right to smack this woman on the butt, one, because she's woman, second, because she's black. Just gonna throw that out there. So there are racial uh, overtones in these scenes. On the upside, uh, there's also a nod to uh, an effort to get over racism. Frank Capra uh, is the director of this film, and he was born in Italy and immigrated to the United States. Uh, and one of the scenes uh, that we have with the villain in the story, his name is Mr. Potter, uh, he's talking about these people that George is helping uh, afford homes. Uh, that's, that's George's whole thing. He owns a building and loan, so people that are working class can afford a loan so they can buy their own place. And one of the people that gets to buy a home is Mr. Martini, an Italian man. And the way that Mr. Potter refers to Mr. Martini and others are garlic eaters. Now, that might not seem like that big of a deal now, because I'm thinking, oh, I like garlic. <laughs> I could go for some garlic right now, in fact. But we've got to go back in time and just recognize that in the United States of America, you were equal the whiter you were. So if you are a Northern Europeaner like I am, all is well with your world. But the further south you went, even in Europe, it got harder and harder and harder, and there was a time of blatant racial prejudice against Italian-Americans and other Southern Europeaners Peoners, uh, at this time. And so we recognize that, and then we celebrate the fact that this was a step in the right direction on that issue because George is open of the day and celebrating. You know, when he gets to move into his house, it's this big deal that he gets to do it. So you have this tension there of some good and some bad happening in there. Uh, of course, there's the assault of a minor. Uh, George, as a, a young schoolboy, he's working for a pharmacist. The pharmacist gets news that his son uh, has died, and he's drinking himself to comfort himself. He's just overwrought with grief, and he screws up a prescription, and he accidentally puts rat poison uh, in this pill bottle instead of what the penicillin that the kid actually needed. George figures it out as a young boy and doesn't deliver the poison to the kid because he knows that's what... He doesn't want to kill the kid, right? He comes back. Uh, the pharmacist is ticked off that he hasn't made the delivery. And in his anger and in his drunkenness, he smacks George up against the ear, his hurt ear. Uh, and he even starts to bleed. He smacks him a couple times. Every time I see this scene, I want to jump into the screen and tackle Mr. Gower, the pharmacist. And just say, what are you doing? That's assault of a minor. This is a criminal offense. And unfortunately, there are two things that are happening. One is normalizing this. And then it's completely excused. The way the movie handles it is, George is a forgiving sort, he's a wonderful boy, so we're just going to let that pass. And in a sense, 
by doing that, again, it's 1946, it's how people did life in the world, by passing on that, it also perpetuates the same kind of behavior going forward. So that parents forevermore can say to themselves, we have the right to beat our children. And unfortunately, even in the Christian world, when it comes to spanking, there are some Christian traditions that absolutely affirm spanking. I do not. I see that as a violent act and as an absolute failure in our attempt to raise our kids in a boundaried way. Don't need to do that. But let's just acknowledge that this happened uh, in the movie and it was wrong and nothing happened because of it. Nothing happens. And finally, uh, what was my finally? Oh yeah, uh, verbal assault. Uh, this shows up in George's mouth. Uh, he chews out uh, his, his kid's teacher and it's absolutely inappropriate. He threatens her husband. Uh, also probably some criminality going on there. Uh, so you got cosmology problems, you got misogyny, you got racism, assault of a minor, and verbal assault. But other than that, <laughs> it's a great movie. <laughs> All right, well, let's read some Bible verses so we feel like we made it to church. All right. So here we go. This is the, uh, the, the birth narrative according to the Gospel of Matthew. The birth narratives only show up in two of the four Gospels, Matthew and Luke. These two Gospels are written to two different audiences and they're written by two different voices. So here we have uh, Matthew's version. Now the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, by the way, that meant that she was already legally married to Joseph. They hadn't consummated the marriage yet, but there was a legal thing that happened here, even though they were just engaged, not like we think about it today. They were essentially married, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin, everybody say virgin. Great, you're going to need to remember that later. Shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had born a son in Bethlehem. And he named him Jesus. So what you need to recognize here is that Joseph and Mary were already in the town of Bethlehem where they lived. They already were there. They lived in Bethlehem. Now let's go to Luke. In those days, a decree went out from Emperor Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration that was taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. All went to their own towns to be registered. Joseph also went from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David called Bethlehem, because he was descended from the house and family of David. He went to be registered with Mary, to whom he was engaged, and who was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for her to deliver her child. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in bands of cloth, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Has anybody ever heard this story before? (laughs) 
Do we need to have a viewing for any of you later <laughs> who may not have ever actually heard this story? Well, you know, this is where I can ruin Christmas for you for just a minute, but just hold on till the end. The reality is, we're going to be honest about this story. We need to talk about disclaimers here. So let's just run through some disclaimers with the birth narratives of Jesus that were written approximately 2,000 years ago. First of all, we've got an incongruency. In our Western thought world, uh, we need things to match up. We want to know what, what is the story exactly, what actually happened. And here in the Bible, you have two conflicting stories that cannot match up, just on the face of it. In Matthew's Gospel, they already are in Bethlehem because that's where they're from. In Luke's Gospel, they're living in Nazareth, uh, which is many days' journey away. They have to make this journey from up there to get to Bethlehem in time for the baby to be born because of this uh, census that's being done. You have an incongruency, and if you grew up in a church that said that the Bible is absolutely perfect in every way, like Mary Poppins, this is problematic because this is a problem that cannot be solved. And this is one of many problems like this in the Bible. However, if you have a different way of thinking about the scripture and a different way of thinking about what inspiration means, and understand what they're getting at and what they're trying to do in their respective Gospels, that becomes kind of a moot point. You recognize it, but you move on. But there's an incongruency. We've got to say it out loud because it's there. Also, we got a mistranslation issue. All of the Gospels and all the New Testament were written in Greek. Matthew, when he was quoting from the, what we call the Old Testament, the Jewish Scriptures, he was quoting from the Jewish or the Greek Jewish Scriptures. That was called the Septuagint. The original language of the Jewish scriptures was, of course, Hebrew. But he didn't go to Hebrew, he went to the Septuagint, the Greek version. And when he came to Isaiah 7:14, which is where he pulled this text from about uh, the virgin shall be with child, the original Hebrew did not say virgin. The original Hebrew said young woman. The context is this, you have the prophet Isaiah who's seen as a holy man, the one who's anointed by God to go do, say good things and hold the people accountable. He goes and talks to the king at that time and he says, here's what's going to happen. A young woman is going to be with child. And by the time that child is born, the things that you're afraid of right now about foreign oppressors coming in and kicking your butt, you're going to see that God has somehow saved the day and you're going to say within about a nine month period, you're going to say, Emmanuel, God has been with us because we're not dead. That's the original context. That's the original prophecy that was made. Not a distant prophecy about some virgin hundreds and hundreds of years in the, in the future is going to have an immaculate conception. That was another problem we're going to get to in a second. So because Matthew chose that word virgin, it jacked up <laughs> our Christian theology for a very long time. At the end of the day, we still have God with us. We still have Emmanuel. He's trying to do something in his context. We recognize it. We respect it. But it was also a miss. And it's something that needs to get on the disclaimer list because it's caused serious problems up until this day. In fact, my guess is, is that's one of the ways I've ruined Christmas the most is to help you think through what do we really think about this exchange and what's happened. Which uh, really gets us to this idea about eisegesis, which is regarding the prophecies. Eisegesis is a fancy word. It's the opposite of the word exegesis, which I know we all use regularly in our, in our political <laughs> discourse. Exegesis means exactly what I just did with the Isaiah prophecy. 
Exegesis means you go back to the original context, you take a look at it, you understand what's happening and what it means for them and therefore what it might mean for us. Eisegesis is when you're hundreds of years past that and you look back at that and you completely disregard what was said in its original context and instead you just apply it to the very day that you're in as if it was written yesterday. That's eisegesis. We're all guilty of it to some degree. Uh, you'll have pastors all over the nation uh, who are opening their Bibles right now because of the war between Israel and Hamas and they'll say, in times, in times, the prophecies are so clear, that's eisegesis. And it's wrong. It's a mess. It's almost always inaccurate. And we've got to recognize that that's a part of the problem here. Matthew made a mistake in the Bible uh, that is full of mistakes like that. It doesn't mean we throw it out. I'll get to that later. Cosmology, we have the same thing, uh, that you have God breaking in from somewhere else uh, to come in and save the day. Uh, that made sense in a Ptolemaic worldview where that's how they understood the world. It's not the world we live in. Misogyny. Uh, we've got issues with women here. Uh, did you notice that uh, Mary had no power with her engaged slash husband, Joseph? This was all up to him, what he was going to do. You know why it was all up to him? Because women didn't have many rights. They were considered property of their husbands at that time. That's about as misogynistic as you can get. But to further complicate things, I just want to draw this out here, that we may have an issue of rape and or adultery on our hands. What do you call a situation where a person, a woman, uh, or a man, but most of the time it's women, uh, a woman is told um, there is going to be a sexual encounter and uh, you really don't have a say in this. You don't have a choice. This is happening. Because if you read Luke's thing, and by the way, I know this is tough, this is hard, because uh, we want to skip over to the Magnificat, which is absolutely stunningly beautiful, which we'll talk more about next week. But just look at the facts of the case. You have a 13, 12, 13, 14-year-old young girl who is visited by an angel who is told, not invited, but told, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and you are going to be with child. That is not an imitation. That is a this is happening, which would make sense in a world uh, where women have no rights, where they're the property and told what to do and have to just deal with it. But this is a theme that's real. And to complicate it even further, God, being the one that sort of inspired the rules of the day and the laws of the day to say that engagement means legal marriage. God is the one who is behind this activity upon Mary uh, without her consent. God knowing uh, that she is technically a married woman. So you have this weird thing here where God is choosing <laughs> to force God's self on a person who's already married, which is the definition of adultery. Problematic. And the church does not like to talk about this. But people outside the church who don't give a rip about how we value the biblical story or faith and all that, telling you what, man, they see it a mile away. And they're like, how are you people buying all this stuff? 
the disclaimers are immense. And finally, I want to talk about the hospitality. Have I ruined Christmas yet for anybody? <laughs> I'm working on it. All right, I'll redeem it, I'll redeem it, hold on. Uh, but then finally, uh, we got the hospitality ethic, and just want to say that you've got this pregnant woman in one of the most historically hospitable areas of the world who pride themselves on opening the door, not just in the Jewish tradition, but in the Islamic tradition as well, uh, that they are mandated to be good hosts for people in need. That's what you're supposed to do. And so you have this pregnant woman who's nine months along, about to give birth. She rolls into the town, and there's no room for her in the inn. So the only thing they get is a stinky barn that's defiled by its very nature. That part of the world would never allow that to happen, ever. There would be people who absolutely would say, I will give up my room. I will go sleep in the barn because this cannot happen in a barn. That's the way the culture thought back then. So we've got to throw that out there and just say to Luke, that's, that's creative, my man, but there's no way that's true. <laughs> there's no way that, that jibes uh, with actual history in that part of the world. So what do we do with all this? Should we cancel? Let's start with this. Should we cancel? Um, it's a wonderful life. Because of the disclaimers that we saw, should you say, Pastor Pete, it's time to find a new number one. Stop watching that movie. And by the way, there is a movie that I've stopped watching. It used to be one of my favorite Christmas movies called Holiday Inn. Uh, Bing Crosby, he was kind of my vocal hero, you know, in times past. But I stopped watching it because there's a scene that I didn't know that was offensive until I knew it was offensive. Where on a President's Day kind of thing in this Holiday Inn that he's created, uh, he and his leading lady decide to go in blackface. And it's this exaggerated, horrific, demeaning scene. I can't stomach it. I can't do it anymore. And so that one, I've canceled. <laughs> Should we cancel It's a Wonderful Life along similar lines? Because it has too many offenses for us to look past. Is that how we should think? Should we cancel uh, the birth narratives? Because there are clear offenses that we can't look past. It's, maybe it's not as good of a story as we thought. And for that matter, if we want to get personal, should we cancel ourselves? Because my guess is, is that if we were to dig into your past and my past, there might be some things in your decisions and your behavior, your thought processes, things that came out of your mouth, things that you did that were secret and private, things that you did that were very public, that somebody would raise their hand and say, that needs to be on the disclaimer list. And you know more than anybody else. How many things are on that list? The point I'm raising with all this isn't to cancel. It's to respect, to acknowledge, to respect the fact that this is a reality and it's a wonderful life, that there are problems with that that are clearly part of a 1946 way of seeing the world. And in the birth narratives, clearly uh, an example of the culture of that time and how they thought about everything. But Despite those things, there are other things happening in these stories that are incredibly beautiful. The reason why NPR's All Things Considered, when they were reviewing top Christmas movies of all time, put It's a Wonderful Life at number one. Because across the board, when people read it, they come away from this inspired. Inspired by the value of life, inspired with hope, 
inspired to be generous toward others, inspired to celebrate, uh, to give beyond themselves to other people. That's George's whole life story. And so you have both things at the same time. You have some ugly realities of 1946 and some incredibly beautiful God-centered things happening in George's life and in this story simultaneously. In the birth narratives, you have these horrible things that reflect the reality of that day, but both Matthew and Luke are trying to craft a story to tell us there's an incredibly beautiful thing bubbling up here. You can't miss it. And believe it or not, they're using their own craft work within their context because, after all, they don't think they're ever going to meet us. <laughs> they're talking in the first century to a first century audience. Everything that they say is not offensive uh, in the same way to us as it is to, to them, um, you know what I mean? Uh, so they're crafting this beautiful story with all of the cultural uh, hooks and stuff so that they can see in their own lens and their own perspective this incredible beautiful thing that is taking place even while there are some really awful, ugly things happening. And I would suggest that in your own life this is true as well. That you may be at a point even today that you feel more like George who is questioning taking his own life because of all the disclaimers that you've put up on your list. And what I hope to do in the coming weeks is to help you have soft eyes. Soft eyes, which is a Japanese way of thinking. To look at things with a different perspective. To realize that all of the time, as hard as it is, God is still there with us. And that means beauty and hope and love and even joy can be with us even when we're going through hell. That's the Christmas story that God showed up in the most unusual way to the most unusual people to tell the people who were the last to ever expect to hear it that they mattered, that God was with them and loved them. That's your story, too. And maybe you're going to have different eyes on your own story and start to have soft eyes and start to recognize that in all of the bad, there was also this thread of beauty and good that was there as well. And I'll go further. Maybe because your eyes may be softened through this series, your eyes may be softened toward others as well. And you may get out of the rut of our cancel culture. The truth of the matter is, we live in a cancel culture. Uh, anybody familiar with cancel culture? Yeah. Uh, there was a massive cancel that happened this week in Congress. Uh, George Santos was canceled uh, from, co from Congress. Now, just to highlight how remarkable this is, just catch this. A bunch of politicians decided that he needed to be out because he lied too much. <laughs> Politicians kicking a person out for lying. What is happening here to this world? How do we make sense of anything? So they decided there was a certain threshold, a certain amount that said, you've gone too far, which of course makes things problematic uh, for, for going forward. What do we do then with politicians and truth-telling and stretching and illegality and all that? What does that mean uh, going forward? That might be a case of good canceling. But we've gone too far in our way of thinking about canceling as well. I know you're all Kansas City Chiefs fans, <laughs> and I applaud you for that. Well, there's a guy named Travis Kelsey, and some of you may be familiar with him. Uh, some of you may be familiar with uh, a somewhat unknown artist named Taylor Swift. 
uh, Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey are now a thing. And their respective camps are buzzing all over what was formerly Twitter about them. Uh, some old texts, old tweets came up from Travis Kelsey about his past. Uh, and some of the Swifties uh, were commenting on that. Now, luckily for Travis, they weren't that bad, but they were pretty dumb. You know, things that people tweeted when they had nobody following them, like, I just ate lunch, now I'm going to take a nap. You know, <laughs> I mean, important things for the world to know. And other opinion things like that that really were not that consequential just makes them look kind of silly at that time. Uh, but some people probably on the Swifty camp are saying, hey, you know, are you sure this guy is, is your match? Uh, does he really have what it takes uh, based on who he is and what he is? And meanwhile, on the Travis camp, uh, they're, they're saying, whispering into Travis's ears, have you listened to any of, of Taylor Swift's music? Have you recognized that every single song, pretty much, is about a broken relationship? And she has 200 songs. <laughs> Do you realize that if this doesn't work, you may be the central focus of an entire album and a eventual tour <laughs> that will go global, right? So he's got people in his camp. But the truth of the matter is, uh, neither one of them are canceling each other because they recognize that it's always intention. It's always going to be both. Jesus was both. He was not a perfect human being. He made some mistakes. They're right there in the text that we've pointed out over time. And yet he matured through them and encouraged other people to mature as well. That's what he means when he talks about perfection. Not becoming perfect, but becoming deeper, more whole, more shalomi is our word. So the whole point of today that I hope that you're starting to get to kick off the series is that the beauty of the movie and the scriptures is that there is hope despite the mess, fouls, ugliness, and that this reflects our own lives. That God is present every step of the way, offering love, support, and even beauty. And the question then is, do we have eyes to see? And so you have communion before you. And I invite you to take this little ball thingy. Uh, again, gluten-free, nut-free, other things free. Um, and this, and the original uh, story, you know, bread was to represent the body of Jesus. And what I want you to see in this is his humanity. That he was a real human being, just like you. He had flesh and blood, just like you. And there were some hard parts that came with being a real human being, but there were some beautiful parts. And you'll taste both the graininess in this, but you'll also taste the sweetness in this representation of being human. So in solidarity with the Jesus story, take and eat. And the original glass that he raised, it really was an eschatological glass of wine about when God is going to bring all things together, make things better. It was originally, this was going to be a celebration glass of wine, a time when we would look back and say, God really did it. God pulled it off. Somehow God took all the mess and weaved it into this beautiful tapestry and thank God for that. The glass was meant to be a celebration of the Spirit's activity and weaving things together in a shalomi way. That's why I picked wassail for you today, because it's a celebration drink uh, for wintertime. And so, in light of our hope that God is with us, loves us, is doing everything God can to do, pull everything that we've done and been in our lives together toward beauty and wholeness and joy and love, take and drink.
Would you join me in prayer? So God, I pray that um, I pray that we'll have soft eyes. Soft eyes to respect a film from 1946 that still speaks to millions and millions of people today. Soft eyes to respect their time and place. Acknowledging the problems of that time and place. But also acknowledging the beauty that was coming in spite of those things, or at least despite those things. I pray we'll have the same soft eyes uh, toward the birth narratives, as well as an inquisitive spirit that we might begin to wonder how we can see this in a new way that continues to be inspiring, informing, compelling. And of course, God, I pray that we'll have soft eyes on ourselves like you do. As you don't expect perfection, you long for our development and our maturity. You long for us to know that we're deeply loved and let that work its way out in everything we think and do. Because that leads to shalom. May we be a people who are willing to have soft eyes. May we be known as a people who love, who welcome, who admit that there are problems, and at the same time proclaim there is still beauty and more to come. Ask this in the name of Jesus who we follow. Amen. Thank you for coming today. I hope you had a good experience, and we will continue this journey next week. Thank you.